Now, we advertise this class as the one to give us tools for calculating our, our nutrients. And these are all of the nutrients that we did not address in the base saturation, but are very important for plant growth. Now, some of those 17 elements are not on this list. And the reason they're not is they are not generally, except in a really unusual circumstance, deficient. Plants use so small an amount of nickel, for example, that there are known, no known deficiencies of nickel worldwide. So we are not going to address the things that, uh, we're not going to uh, make a problem out of something that typically is not a problem. But these other elements are uh, very important to our crops and our, and our plant growth. And what I have listed here are my recommendations. This is Bob's list of plant nutrients. Where did this list come from? Well, as I said, depending on what literature you, you utilize and you read and you, you, you glean from sources on the internet, you're going to find a wide variety of different numbers about what's required for good crop growth. In fact, if you talk to Whitmar, he'll have different numbers than what I'm suggesting to you here. It's not because he and I are not trying to achieve the same results, it's because he and I have different methods for for, for, for reaching those results, and I have a different purpose in mind other than just feeding the plants. These numbers were derived basically from research that I did over the course of about seven years, working with a very high-value, heavy-feeding crop, and that was commercial roses. For about seven years uh, uh, in my career, I worked as the production manager for a company called DeVore Nurseries which was the second largest rose grower in the world. And we were never going to be bigger than the number one rose grower in the world because that was Jackson and Perkins. Most of you are probably familiar with J&P roses. They had a mail order catalog and they grew, they grew almost twice as many roses as we did, but we were the rose suppliers that really wanted to hang our hat on quality. And we were the largest supplier of rose plants to the greenhouse cut flower industry. And they were very discriminating buyers because when you plant a, a greenhouse full of roses, you're putting 20,000 or more plants per acre inside of a greenhouse. That's a huge investment. And one of the things that the owner of the company that, that I worked for, Tom DeVore, asked me to do was to develop the best nutritional protocol for roses. This was also the first situation. This was back in the mid-1980s. This was also the first situation where I started to apply William Albrecht's principles of dealing with the base saturation. Because in most circumstances, correcting that base saturation is not something a corn grower in Iowa is interested in doing. Because there's a big cost involved in it. You know, if the average break-even point for a corn grower is 2,500 acres, and you tell him he's going to be applying three and a half tons of product per acre, and he's not going to gain any benefit from that because nobody's measuring the nutritional value or the health of his soil. They're just measuring bushels of corn that come off that land. Uh, there's no incentive to do that. So again, I want to emphasize that what I'm sharing with you comes from a different paradigm. And my paradigm in this case, and the reason that I employed Albrecht's principles in growing the roses, was that our pesticide budget on this operation was enormous. We had about 2,400 acres of roses, and we sprayed almost constantly in those fields. We made an application 
probably at least once every 10 days, if not once a week on those fields, of either a fungicide, a miticide, an insecticide, or an herbicide. And the cost of that was enormous. Now, we produced a lot of money by growing roses on those fields, too. We had the largest payroll in Glen County, California, just because of the, the nature and the scope of the business. But we were looking to reduce costs, to improve quality, and by, uh, by, by virtue of our concern about the cost issue, not necessarily the safety issue, we wanted to reduce our pesticide, uh, our, our pesticide bill. So we embarked on about a seven-year uh, series of various different field trials. We brought in people from University of California at Davis to assist us. We had people from UC Berkeley that came and assisted us. I did all the homework I could do as an agronomist and a, and, and a grower, and we did field trial after field trial after field trial, and we came up with these numbers here. So if you want to grow really good roses, these are the numbers you need. Now, why am I sharing them with you if they're for growing roses? Well, my personal philosophy is that roses are pretty heavy feeders. And if roses do well on this diet, our vegetable crops should too. And that's the premise on which these numbers are based. So if you want to use other numbers, you're welcome to. The, the way we're going to calculate things here is, is the same. Uh, but these are the baseline numbers that I like to have in the field when I put my crops in the ground. Absolutely, we 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 cut our we cut our spray uh, our our spray applications almost in half. Uh, it was about 40, 45 to forty seven percent fewer spray applications that we were able to achieve. Uh, the quality and and when we're measuring quality in a in, a, in nursery stock, uh, you know most of us when we go out to uh, uh, to buy a, a a tree for example a fruit tree. And, you know, we stand back and we look at the top of the tree and we think, wow, that's the biggest one. That must be the best one. And that's really not a good measure of how to evaluate nursery stock. And we'll be talking about uh, small fruits and large fruits later this week. And if you want some good information about how to select the right ones, I'll, I'll share it in more depth there. But one of the measures of the quality of a nursery, of nursery stock, especially bare root nursery stock, is the density how much it weighs, and this is true also of seed. When I do my discussion on seed tomorrow, we'll be talking about density too. And the density numbers went up almost 30%. So our quality of our plants went up dramatically. Our, 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 our disease and pest pressure reduced dramatically, and our, uh, you know, the product itself was an excellent quality product. And that's, that's where, these, where these numbers come from. Happy boss, yeah, happy boss. <clears throat> um, I, I, if, if you want these numbers, you're going to need to write them down because these are not on my website for a very important reason. And the reason is you need to understand what I'm sharing with you here. And this isn't a list that you can just, you know, reproduce like the leaves of autumn and, and, and scatter about. Because without the background information on this, and without the background understanding of addressing the base saturation of the soil first, uh, I can't guarantee any results from this. And I don't want my name associated with something where someone's going to go and try to meet that phosphorus need with a bag of 10-10-10 from Walmart. So if you want these numbers, write them down. And I'll give you a few minutes to do that, and then we will, uh, I'll show you how to make use of these numbers in a meaningful way. Now, some soil analysis 
and the ones that I use report all of these numbers in parts per million. PPM stands for parts per million. And what that means is for every part of soil, uh, or for every million parts of soil, one of those parts is phosphorus or, or, and, and, and so forth. That's what a, a part per million is. It's, it's, by, it's, it's by weight. <clears throat> so if I, have, uh, 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 you know, if I have a desire to convert these things to pounds per acre so that I can make it into something useful because I can't go to the farm supply and say, you know, hey, I need uh, 220 parts per million of potassium. You know, what's that going to look like? Uh, that doesn't fly. So I have to convert these into numbers that I can actually make use of. And I'm going to go on to the next slide. Anybody need this up for a while yet? Okay. We'll go on to the next slide then. There's a very simple way to do this. And the second step is to simply realize that a plow layer of soil, that's six and two-thirds inches of soil, weighs about 2.2 million pounds per acre. And the top foot of soil, which is what I prefer to work with and what we should be working with if we're doing agriculture intensively, weighs about 4 million pounds. Okay. So we need those numbers because we need to now figure out a way to convert those parts per million to pounds per acre. And it's really pretty straightforward because when we go back to this list, if I'm working with the top foot of soil and I have uh, a desire for two parts per million of boron, how many pounds per acre would that be? What do I need to do? By multiply by four, right? Because there's four millions in an acre, four millions of pounds in an acre. And if two of those, uh, of those uh, millions are, 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 are boron, I'm going to multiply that number simply by the factor of four. And that tells me that I have eight pounds of actual boron per acre then. Do you follow me? We're simply taking the millions. The factor four comes from the four million pounds that the soil weighs. All right? And if I have two parts per million, two of each of those millions is boron, then two times four gives me eight pounds. Okay? So it's a simple conversion. If you're only working with the top six and two-thirds inches, the plow layer, then the conversion, uh, uh, the conversion rate is 2.2 times whatever the parts per million are, okay? So it's really pretty straightforward and simple. And all I need to do at this point is to go through my soil analysis, and I'm sorry that this isn't larger and you can't see it, but what I'll do is I'll go through my soil analysis here, and for things like phosphorus and potassium and magnesium and calcium, I'll take all of these numbers and multiply them by four to tell me how many pounds per acre I have in the field, because this is a measurement of what's already in the field, right? And then I will compare that to the list of, uh, of, of my desired levels, also multiplied by four, and that will give me how many additional pounds of that element I need to add, okay? So let's do one as an example. We have phosphorus here, and my level for phosphorus is 37 parts per million. How many pounds per acre would that be? Four times 37, right? Anybody have a, a quick mind? Okay. And if I have a desired level of phosphorus at 40 parts per million, 
that's 160 pounds per acre, correct? So I have a deficiency of 12 pounds per acre, right? Do you see how that works? So now I know that I need to add an additional 12 pounds of phosphorus simply by doing some simple math, all right? And I'll go through and I'll do this for each of the elements on my list until I have all of those elements at least at, at the level that I desire of them. And again, I mentioned earlier that in some instances, our soil analysis is going to have numbers that are higher than what my suggestions are. What do we do in that case? Not a whole lot we can do, because remember the smorgasbord uh, uh, concept here, of the way that plants feed? Uh, you know, iron is essential for our vegetable crops at at least 20 parts per million. I have 121 parts per million. And because I have that much extra iron in my soil, that's why I can grow my blueberries at nearly a neutral pH instead of having an acid soil for my blueberries. <clears throat> so the idea here is to simply take the list of nutrients from your soil analysis, convert that to pounds per acre, and then take the pounds per acre and, uh, that, that you have and subtract it if there's a deficit from that to determine how many pounds you need to add. Okay? It's really, really pretty simple and straightforward. Yes? Yeah, that's our next step. Thank you. You are a good student. Jim's been through my, my class at Berea Gardens. And, yes, okay. Now, <clears throat> there are a couple of caveats to this. Once we get this list figured out, we need to realize that this morning we did something to this soil, didn't we? We changed the numbers in our base saturation down here by adding calcium and by adding magnesium and by adding potassium, right? So these numbers here are no longer valid, are they? We've changed the soil because of the additions that we made down here, and we have to account for that when we consider how much additional calcium we might need to add or how much additional magnesium we might need to add. Okay, let's use, uh, let's use potassium as an example of what I'm talking about here. Uh, how many pounds per acre of potassium would 131 parts per million be? Four times 131. Does anyone have a calculator? We can speed this up because I didn't bring mine. 524. So we have 524 pounds of potassium that are there. And my recommendation for potassium is actually higher than most people suggest, but it's 220 parts per million. That would be 880 pounds, right? So we need 880. We had 524. So that leaves us with a deficit. And now we have to, pardon me, 356? Okay. So now we have to go back and remember what we did this morning and adding the potassium for our base saturation. And what we added down there was 150 pounds, I think. All right, so since we added that 150 pounds, we're going to subtract that from our deficit and realize that we, st we, we still need 100, 106 additional pounds, okay? So we want to consider when we made this change down here, we've got to consider what we've already applied in order to come up with the accurate numbers, you see? Yes, sir? Does that throw off the saturation? No. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. Because 
what we've done when we meet the need for the base saturation is we've applied a sufficient amount of material there to bind up all of those negative sites on the soil particles. What we're adding here is going to be in the soil solution, it's going to be in the biology, it's going to be free between the soil particles and available for the plant roots to take up as nutrient. So no, it does not. <clears throat> But what we, want to be, uh, what we want to be assured of is when we've met that need for the base saturation, in some instances we've met the need for the nutrition too, in others we have not. So that's what we want to, 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 to refer to our previous numbers for. Yes, sir? Can you do a battle with at the same time? Or is it you can. Can you talk about this? Okay. Uh, you know, it kind of depends on your economy of scale. Uh, since we're, since I'll, I'll explain to you how I do it and then give you a suggestion about how to do it on a smaller scale. Um, in most instances, we're not going to be a, a, applying anything anywhere near the volume that we are when we do the initial lime application. That's the biggest one, typically, on, on acid salts. Let me, let me explain to you. I'm going to tell you what, what I do. I deal with the lime first. The other thing that I'll do is I'll go through all of the calculations uh, complete to this point before I, before I apply anything. So that when I apply the, the, the potash for the base saturation, I'm also going to apply the potash to meet the nutrient need. But I prefer to apply each of these materials individually. I do not mix them together. I don't blend them. And the reason for that is these all have a different particle size and the particle size affects how they spread. It's not so much the weight of the particle, it's the size of the particle. And we, when we try to mix something that is a very tiny particle with a very large particle, uh, we, we get a lot of separation and segregation. And if we're trying to spread that either by hand or with the spreader, the same thing holds true. It spreads and it, it, it's not an efficient way to do this. So I apply each of, the, each of the minerals individually, although I do calculate for both applications at the same time, okay? And when I do the application, I'll take a known area. If I'm doing an acre, for example, um, I have a, uh, uh, my, my, my tiller that goes behind my tractor out in the field is a five-foot tiller, and it leaves a little bit of a mark at that five-foot line. So that gives me, uh, you know, a way of going 200 feet down the row and knowing that I've got, you know, a thousand square feet of area. And I'll calculate how much material I need for that thousand square feet of area. And I'll put it, weigh it, measure it, put it in a bucket. And I'll try to apply half of that material the first pass over that, that stretch of area. And by the time I get to the end, I know whether I'm putting it on too heavy or too light and then I come back the other way and add the rest and try to make up for the difference. The best way to do this is in a square where you put half of it going one direction and the other half of it going perpendicular to that direction so that you get it spread as evenly as possible. And I do this individually with each of these materials. And when I talk about working them in a foot deep, <clears throat> um, I don't have a tiller that tills a foot deep. And I've got too much area to double dig it with a shovel and mix it in a foot deep. So my preference is to use my turnover plow and I'll turn over the top six inches of the soil and add half the material, enough to treat the six inches of soil and work that in with either my disc or my power tiller. 
and then I'll go through with my plow a second time, a turnover plow, and I'll set it at a foot deep and flip that whole thing over so that my treated six inches is now below the untreated six inches and repeat the process. And that, that's how I do it to get it mixed in and blended evenly throughout a foot. So if you're doing this by hand, you can do, uh, you, you can use double digging and do the same method. You know, loosen the top six inches and apply the material that you need there. Then do your double dig and flip the whole thing over so that you have untreated material on the surface. Add the additional six inches and till that in. You have a question back there? That, no, actually, again, since just as when we when we ad we addressed the base saturation this morning, uh, what I explained was that that's a one-time fix. That's a one-time repair. All right. Now these nutrients are going to be used by the plants, and over time there is going to be uh, you know a, a, a drain down on our bank account, and we do need to replenish the bank account. And that can be done relatively easily after these first corrections are made. But when we're dealing especially with a soil that hasn't been farmed for a period of time or, or ground that's been neglected, this first application is very likely going to be your largest one. Okay. After that, we need to supply maintenance levels of things. And this is a good opportunity for me to share with you that, um, you know, I mentioned utilizing synthetic materials. And part of the reason that it's important, I think, that we not close our minds to this concept is because I can target these numbers precisely using synthetic materials. Now, I can add phosphorus, and I can add magnesium, and I can add calcium using manures or compost or other materials, but I have no idea how much to use, do I, to meet that nutritional need. I don't know whether I'm putting on a little bit or way too much. I don't know, uh, you know exactly what the analysis that, of that material is, so I don't know whether I'm hitting these numbers or not. And that's one of the reasons why I think it's prudent that we make use of the resources that we have in building this bank account initially, making use of some of the safe synthetic materials. Now, once that bank account is established, maintaining it with organic materials and cover crops is a relatively easy thing to do. Because the, the, the clover, for example, that I use is a good method for me to replenish my, my nitrogen amounts because I don't need to add so much at one time, all right? And the higher my organic content is in the soil, the less nitrogen I need to add to the soil anyway because the organic matter releases some of that, okay? Uh, yes, Jim? How do the minerals? The minerals, you can do either by hand or with a spreader, but again, do it on a, on a weight basis. How did you do it, though? I did it by hand. Did you just went along? Yes. Uh, you know, it's a, it's, it's, it's a long day <laughs> uh, when you're covering two acres. It, it, it's a long day doing it by hand, but I think I can be much more accurate by hand. Okay, there are spreaders and different apparatus you can use, but depending on the, on the specific gravity of the material, you know, the uh, potassium sulfate, for example, weighs about 93 pounds per cubic foot. It's pretty heavy stuff. Uh, a cubic foot of urea or a nitrogen compound only weighs about half of that. It's about 46 pounds. So, uh, you know, using a spreader to do that is, is uh, none of them are really calibrated uh, accurately enough for this purpose. And I find that it's, it's better and more efficient and effective to do it by hand. Yes, sir. So, do you on the first pass, the turnover six inch basket, the soil? Yeah. Do you spread every 
Uh huh. Yep. No, I, tu I turn it over. What I do, my practice is I have a turnover plow, I have a disc, and I have a power tiller on my tractor. I turn over the top six inches, and it's pretty rough ground at that point. And I want to incorporate and mix this stuff in as, as, as uniformly as I can. So I'll, I'll, I'll disc that, that top six inches with my disc a couple of passes to break it up, smooth it out, make it fine, and then I'll apply half of the material to that area each different one, half of each different one to, to that area, and then I'll go through it with my power tiller to, 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 to mix it in. Then I'll make a second pass with my turnover plow and repeat the same process, okay? Yes, ma'am. As fast as I can do it. Yeah, yeah, as fast as I can do it, okay? Yes, ma'am. I, I, in our particular case, we, we have about three acres that, that we're, we're growing on. Part of that has fruits and, and berries on it. We grow vegetables intensively, and I mean three to five cycles a year on, on a little over two acres. So, okay. So that, that's kind of the how uh, in, in going about doing this. And the other uh, thing that I want to talk about is our nitrogen. We haven't uh, you know, we haven't looked at nitrogen, and you'll notice on my analysis here, I've got a spot down here to analyze for nitrate nitrogen. I don't have them run that test because nitrate nitrogen is a water-soluble form of nitrogen, and what's here today can very easily be gone tomorrow if I get two inches of rain. So that doesn't tell me very much. What I rely on for determining how much nitrogen I have is this number up here, the organic matter, all right? And the organic matter tells me what percentage of my soil is organic matter. And we want, ideally, between 3 and 5% organic matter. My preference is to be up in that 5 to even 6% level of organic matter. And what's organic matter made out of? Anything living that, anything that is living or was living. And all, of, all living organisms have some amount of protein in them. And that protein is made up of amino acids, which are made up of nitrogen compounds. So the higher our level of organic matter, the higher the level of nitrogen will be in the soil in an organic form. All right? And what happens is that as this organic matter decomposes, it releases some of that nitrogen for the plants to take up and use. The protein is converted into various different compounds to uh, ammonium or ammonia. That further converts into nitrate, and the plants, plant roots take it up. And based on the percentage of organic matter, we can determine to some degree how much nitrogen is going to be released over the growing season predicated on how much organic matter is in the soil. And this is a guesstimate, but it's a, a ballpark idea we can, we can work with. In my case here, my organic matter was 1.7%. And as I said before, that's very low. This was before we planted anything. This area had been a playground for 50 years before we, 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 we planted it. And my biggest hazard in developing this land was, was pulling out all the concrete footers for the swing sets and the slides and, and the stuff that was in this, this area. Uh, and even at 1.7%, though, that releases 68 pounds of nitrogen over the growing season. 
And as I get this number higher and higher, when I approach about 5% organic matter, I'm going to find that I reach that level of nitrogen sufficiency that I desire, which is about 160 parts or 160 pounds per acre of nitrogen. So between the additional organic matter that we develop in the soil by having the proper chemistry and by use of, of things like mulches and, and uh, we do compost anything that we don't eat gets composted and put back on the garden too and uh, you know we will add uh, various different organic elements from time to time uh, the organic matter now on most of my farm is up around that five percent so that I have sufficient nitrogen simply by rotating with my cover crops every one or two years to meet the nitrogen demand of my crops. Now, in commercial agriculture, nitrogen is, uh, is very generously supplied. Uh, in most cases, it's grossly oversupplied. And it's usually oversupplied in a synthetic form of nitrogen. In the corn belt of, of our country, it's, it goes on often as, as anhydrous ammonia. And anhydrous ammonia is cheap, but it's very high in nitrogen. It's got 83%, 82% nitrogen. Uh, but it's a very, very caustic material. And it combines with water to form ammonium hydroxide. And it'll pull the water out of root systems. It'll pull it out of human tissue. It'll pull it out of anything in order to form that compound. And if that happens to be the living organisms in the soil, it's a very good sterilizing agent, too. And this is one of the reasons that the organic industry frowns on the use of synthetic fertilizers is because of its potential hazard to microbiology in the soil. And in fact, uh, anhydrous ammonia is hazardous, and it's not something I would use on the soil. However, if you're going to use a synthetic form of nitrogen that is balanced for the need that the soil has, and you use a material that is a compound other than pure ammonia, ammonium, for example, or nitrate, or ammonium nitrate, or urea, you're going to find that by adding the right amount under the right circumstances, which means when the soil has moisture in it so that you're not creating a hot spot, so to speak, of that nitrogen in the ground, that you're going to increase the growth of organic matter and not harm it. And this is an important point that most people just don't understand because there is no reason not to use a pure material like urea as a source for nutrition on our crops when the chemistry of that urea is identical to the chemistry of the urea that comes out of the back end of a chicken or a cow. It doesn't make sense to me. So the idea here in terms of our nitrogen cycle and our nitrogen nutrition in our crops is A, increase the organic matter by uh, uh, by whatever fertility means we choose to use initial, or, uh, initially and grow organic matter in place, add additional organic matter over time. By growing the cover crops, we add organic matter. By adding any composts to the soil or, or, or debris or wastes from the garden, we add organic matter. And when we get up to that level of about 5%, we're in a pretty good space. We're in a pretty good range. And one of the disadvantages of over-fertilizing with nitrogen is that it also causes our plants to be far more susceptible to disease and pest problems. The plants grow very soft. The cell walls don't, 
uh, coalesce well. Uh, if nitrogen is in surplus, then the other minerals are not taken up uh, as, as quickly as the nitrogen is, and the cell walls themselves will be, uh, will be weaker, and it's easier for fungi to invade the plant, it's easier for pests to attack the plant, and the plant itself will lose its capacity for sustaining uh, through a dry period of time, and it makes it much more frost sensitive too. So there's no big advantage at all in surplus nitrogen in your soil. And this is where I vary significantly with a number of growers. On my, uh, on my recommended list there, you saw that I recommended 40 parts per million. There are many, many growers that, that think that you need at least twice or three times that much nitrogen to grow your crops well. And that's not the case. That's not the case. All right, so you all follow what we've covered about how to make use of the soil analysis, how to use the parts per million and convert them to, to, to pounds per acre and to look at your desired list and convert the parts per million to pounds per acre and how to make use of those numbers to determine how much material to add to your soil, right? And our next segment, we're going to talk about the materials themselves and, 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 and what we can use to do that. But I just want to make sure that you understand the, the fundamental process here. You have a question? Translating that into a smaller family garden uh -huh. where you're not doing two acres. Okay, uh, good. using a tractor, you're not using all that. Thank you for asking that. Uh, one of the things that we have to do, I've been talking about acres here all day today. I've been using pounds per acre, okay? And, uh, you know, it's still, even though you are a home gardener, it's still useful for you to calculate in that term. But there's a piece of information that you're going to need to make that useful to you, and thank you for reminding me of that. An acre is 43,560 square feet. 43,560 square feet. Where in the world did that number come from? <laughs> Anybody know the history of an acre? Where did that term come from? It doesn't fit the metric system. It doesn't fit our American system of measurement because if you lay it out on the ground, it's a square that's a 200, 208 feet on, on each side. 208 by 208. Yeah, and a fraction. But that's an odd number too. Where did it come from? Do you know, sister? It's an old English term that refers to the amount of land that one man with one horse and one plow could prepare for seeding in one day. That's where the term came from, and you, you know, yet we, we still utilize it. But anyway, it, it consists of 43,560 square feet, so if we want to determine what part of an acre we're, we're growing on, if our garden is... Uh, you know, is, is 1,500 square feet, and you know how to do that, just length times the width will tell you what the, the square footage is. If that number divided by 43,560 will give you the percentage of an acre that you're using, and then you can multiply that times the amount of product that you need per acre to determine how much you need for yourself. Uh, if you, if, well, an acre can be in any configuration, but if it was a square, it's about 208 feet by 208 feet. <clears throat> Whatever your square footage is, if you've got a garden that's 10 feet by 25 feet, that's 250 square feet. 250 square feet divided by 43,560 will tell you what percentage of an acre you have. It'll be a fractional number. It'll be a point something. In that case, a point zero something, but that's how many acres you have. Okay. Yes, sir. So when you, when 
Yes. Yes. And cover crops too. That's that that might be the only time that I use urea, yes. Again, you know, when, I, when we talked about doing the correction on the base saturation, that's a one-time fix. You're never, ever going to be applying anywhere near the amounts that you are in correcting the base saturation. You might tweak it a little bit every five to ten years, but you're not ever going to face an application rate like you do when you initially balance it. In terms of the plant nutrients, in instances where you're working on a soil that's very depleted, uh, you might add quite a bit of material initially to get that reservoir of nutrition built to a certain level, but maintaining that level is very much easier and very simple, you know, very much simpler. And I usually sample about once every three years to evaluate how I'm doing with my, uh, with, with my adjustments here. But when I build that first bank account, that's when I have a real advantage by using synthetic materials because I can zero in and I can target exactly what these numbers are as opposed to using, uh, a, you know, a, an organic or a natural source of, of, of these nutrients. After I've built that to that level, if I'm just needing an additional 10 parts per million or, you know, an additional few pounds of things, then I can start using the natural materials and, and, and maintain my, my crops using those things that are on that approved list of organic materials and do it fairly successfully. Yes, Sister. Yeah. If you over if you over apply material or you if if you I, I typically apply these things before anything is growing in the field for one thing and the second thing is I'll loosen the soil up first I'll make sure that there's sufficient moisture in the soil so that this doesn't go on dry soil and then I will mix it in and at that point I may get a little bit of reduction in biological activity in the soil but the reality is that the biology in the soil is extremely dynamic and can triple or quadruple in population in a period in some instances with some bacteria in a period of hours so it's not doesn't have a long-term harmful effect okay now, if you're over-applying some of these materials, yes, you can throw your soil into a pH situation where you've got micro-pHs that are very acidic and harmful to soil microbiology. You can have salt issues in the soil, salt index issues in the soil because the, uh, the, 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 the prill itself will pull moisture out of the, out of the surrounding uh, soil, including the living organisms that live there and dehydrate them. You know, you've heard the term fertilizer burn. Uh, that term comes from the fact that if you over-fertilize, uh, uh, especially with nitrogen compounds, you'll pull moisture out of the root system. It, it, that, and, and that's what causes the wilting and, 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 and the, uh, you know, the scorch that you see in the leaves as you, you, you've literally burnt the plant because you pulled the water out of it. Have, yeah. you, have you done any research on deep level No. Yes. The estimated nitrogen release is in pounds per acre? Yes. Is that like six inches or 12 inches of soil that's releasing that? Or is it like just a surface? Or? Well, it's, it's in whatever you sampled. 
whatever you sampled, okay? Just as the parts per million, they're a representation of what you sampled. If you sampled six inches, uh, then that's what you've got in the top six inches. If you sampled a foot, which is what I suggest, then that's what you've got in the top foot, okay? That's because we're using the four factor. Four factor for four times what you recommended. Right. But we don't multiply that times four. The eighty-four? Right. No, that's what's there. That's on a on a on a volume basis. Okay. Yeah. Uh, this is the hayfield that is across from uh, from where our, our school building is. <clears throat> and this hayfield is the one that I told you that was just about split in half with two different soil types. And that line runs just about from this corner to that corner, okay? This is one soil type over here. This is a different soil type over here. If I wanted to evaluate this area of the field, this is probably about three acres in this photograph here. If I wanted to evaluate this field and I was going to develop it for, for, for my purposes in growing, what I would do would be I'd first look at this field for any obvious differences. I'd look for things like spots where the grass didn't grow as uniformly or gravelly spots on the surface of the soil. Any variation that was physically obvious I would look for. And as I identified those, I would sample those differently from the rest of the field because I'm going to treat them differently. And again, the sample gives us just a, a, an indication of what we have sampled. So if I'm going to treat the field all the same, then I should sample it the same, right? But if I have a, a, an obvious area that needs special attention, I'm going to sample that separately because I may give it some special attention. The rest of the field, if I want a good indication of what's in this area, I'm going to actually take multiple samples in here and combine them together, okay? That's called a composite sample. And I may take one sample here, one sample here, one sample here, one sample here, and I'll take anywhere from four to six uh, 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 samples from, from that area to, to get a composite sample to send to the lab. And it depends on the uniformity of, of, of the land. Now, in my other garden areas, I have one area that's, that's you know, about 50 feet by 50 feet. It's only 2,500 square feet but I manage it a little bit differently than the 2,500 square feet that's next to it, so I'm, I'll, I'll sample those separately, but I'll still do a composite sample, okay? And what I do when I sample is I take a clean shovel and I dig a hole a foot deep. I scrape off the top uh, two or three inches of organic matter, the, the sod, or if it's, uh, you know, if you've got forest litter there, take it down to, to where you've got clean soil and then from there, go down 12 inches and just dig a hole and set the soil aside. And then I use a, a tablespoon, a clean tablespoon, and I scrape the side of that hole from the bottom all the way to the top, just enough to fill the spoon. And put that in a, I use a plastic Ziploc bag. Put it in a plastic Ziploc bag, and I'll do that in three or four places in the hole, just from the bottom to the top in three or four places in the hole, put it in a plastic bag, then I'll move on and I'll do the next hole, do the same thing until I've got, you know, my, my, my pound sample. If I collect more soil than that, I'll mix it up in the bag and then simply send, you know, the, the pound that the, that the lab needs to the lab. And, and that's how I do it. Okay. They do, you know, there's soil probes and other ways of doing this too, but most of, we don't need to buy a, 
a $75 soil probe to take a soil sample. You can just do it with a shovel and a spoon. Okay, and again, sample which you're going to treat. If you're only going to if you're only going to work with the top six inches or the plow layer, that's what you want to sample. Don't sample a foot deep if you're not going to treat a foot deep. But if you're going to work with a foot, then you need to sample that whole foot. It's representative of what you would have sampled. So that's pounds per acre for a foot. If I sampled a foot, and in that case, I did. So that represents the whole foot. It's already it's 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 already in pounds per acre, so we're not converting parts per million. So there's no conversion necessary there. It's a reflection based on the organic matter that was in that one foot sample of how much nitrogen is going to be released. And that would be for the top foot in that case because that's what was sampled. Okay, now the last thing I'll mention here and then we'll take a break is that um, I want to just mention quickly that <clears throat> When it comes to using these sea minerals, I don't have recommendations for you simply because we don't have the science to back them up. I know what I do and what I use, but I can't tell you that it's scientifically valid at this point. So when it comes to using any of these sea products or sea minerals, the only thing I can suggest to you is use them according to the label instructions. And the reason that I say that is, as I pointed out, there's harmful salts in these materials too. And how much is enough and how much is too much, I can't really tell you because we don't have the science to back that up. But I don't want you to injure your crop. And the one fallacy that we must understand is that more, when it comes to plant nutrition, more is not better. A lot of folks, they have a headache and they reach for that aspirin bottle and they figure, well, it's a bad headache, so instead of one aspirin, I'll take two. Next thing you know, they're bleeding out, you know. Uh, there are harmful effects to these tools that we use in agriculture and we need to use them prudently and thoughtfully, okay? So do not exceed the labeled directions. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.